You know, I've been on this, well, what do we call it? I guess deconstruction, to use a word that's been used an awful lot over the last few years. But I guess the reason it's used a lot is because it's such an apt description of what many of us are feeling uh, with regard to what's going on with their faith. And by the way, the word isn't destruction, it's deconstruction, which I think helps me to recognize the idea isn't just to blow stuff up, you know, to torch everything, but rather to recognize that everything we do is filtered through our particular constructs. So to deconstruct is to take apart that construct and to look at it, you know, critically and to engage with it and to kind of try to evaluate and discern you know, what's healthy, what's not healthy. But anyhow, I've been on this journey for a while. And this, in fact, this whole podcast really winds up being about all the different stuff that I've gone through and am going through. And I guess in different ways, I mark the beginning of that journey. Well, depending on how I'm feeling and what I'm going through, I mark it, um, the beginning of it in different times. But sometimes I think of the beginning of it happening would have been around 2007. I was in Chicago at the Willow Creek Community Church Leadership Conference, which was an annual conference. Well, they probably still do it, but it was an annual conference that brought hundreds of thousands of Christian leaders and pastors together, um, both physically there on the campus, but also in satellite venues all throughout the world. And I had made the annual pilgrimage back there for several years, and probably 07 was when this took place. And I remember um, it's this keynote speaker that got up, and I was I was already starting to be troubled. I had been the fr- previous couple of years with, you know, a lot of the theology that's espoused in these settings, that's that's espoused in general by the basically white evangelical American megachurch model. Uh, to lump a lot of things together under one umbrella. You know, I was already starting to struggle with it a little bit theologically and psychologically, though I didn't really have the language for it for a few more years. But one of the things I definitely was already struggling with at this point was just essentially what I might call pastor celebrity worship, which these conferences are known for this kind of thing. So I remember that I think it was the opening presentation for the week and the guy got up and spoke and I'm not going to share his name or his church because generally speaking, I don't think that that's helpful. Although my bad, I already threw Willow Creek under the bus, didn't I? Um, But the guy went on to tell us 30, 40 minutes about his explosive growth at his church and it was something ridiculous. It was something like, on the very first weekend, they had 1,000, 1,500 people show up on the very first Sunday. And then over the next couple of years, they added thousands, tens, twenties, millions. I don't know. The numbers all rolled together after a while. Some ridiculous number. You know there's no way that a situation can be healthy with that kind of explosive growth. I mean, I shouldn't say no way. But it would really be an anomaly if you could stay sane and people could stay humble and healthy in the middle of such fantastic growth. Anyhow, the guy is telling us about all of his problems because of the growth. His marriage problems, I don't remember them all specifically, but his staff problems, 
different issues that cropped up, you know, his workaholic uh, personality taking over, just a variety of different things. And basically his point was to tell everyone there, you know, not to do it the way that he did it, which on one level, I can, I mean, I can kind of appreciate that. Uh, and I'm and I'm glad for that input. But what bothered me, what kind of crystallized in that moment more than it ever had before was, well, like at one point I just leaned over to my friend who, by the way, I had probably brought. So I was feeling probably guilty or bad or uncomfortable about that anyhow. But I leaned over and I said, here's the thing. This guy talking, the only reason he's been afforded this opportunity to talk to 100,000 people or so is because of his phenomenal growth. Uh, it really doesn't matter at one level that he's not a healthy person. All that really matters is the metrics of the thing. Because no one going to that conference would have flown across the country or across the world or wherever, driven across town for that matter, to listen to a guy stand up and say, hey, my church has 200 people in it. And the last few years, my marriage has gone pretty well. I really like my, my wife. And um, my, my staff likes me. They don't say that I'm an ass. Um, you know, I haven't written nine books. I haven't been to therapy. I don't think I'm a workaholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no one's going to pay money to hear that. The whole system just seems, just seems weird. And it really... Like I said, it kind of crystallized for me in that moment. Like, why am I listening to this guy? Tell me this. What do I really, am I coming here hoping that I can learn something from someone like this? What? So that my church will have explosive growth, but I will have all these other problems? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I remember leaving the service that night and most of that week, I didn't go to any of the sessions. And I'm happy to say I've never been to a leadership conference since then, which I'm not trying to devalue leadership in and of itself. I do think it's pretty important, although I have often said I think followership is just as important as a leadership, but you can't get hundreds of thousands of people to show up to a followership conference, which probably tells you something. But I guess I'm thinking of that right now because in some ways that marked the beginning of the journey where I started to be really willing to disassemble some stuff and look at things in different ways. Um, I was repulsed by it, but I have to admit, especially now having the benefit of hindsight, that in some ways I was also attracted to all of that because I, uh, I'm a Girardian um, who, Rene Girard is responsible for what we call the mimetic theory and so I tend to think that some of the stuff that he's outlined for us is pretty accurate. And that is that all of us kind of have, all of us are kind of aware of our own issues. And then we look at others who we deem to be successful and we decide to imitate them in order to assuage our own problems. And then as we imitate them, of course, conflict arises. And then we get into scapegoating, which is our way to offload all of our problems but basically all that to say that, yeah, I was both repulsed and also strangely probably attracted. It was a tough spot for a young pastor leader to be in trying to figure out who he was and what what kind of church he wanted to be a part of and, and uh, what kind of pastor he was going to be. 
And that's not to say that all leadership conferences have to be like that. It's not to say that all mega churches have to be like that. I think that's probably the rule more than the than the exception. Did I say that the right way? Yeah, I think by and large, that's the way most of them are. Um, most of them are led by white, straight males, which usually reinforces certain attitudes towards hierarchy, uh, namely that basically God is on top and then man right below and then woman right below man and then the rest of creation. And then it winds up promoting this strange kind of obsession with both the hierarchy and then this American exceptionalism and consumerism that leads people to think, well, hey, that guy up front, I mean, he clearly has it all together. I mean, obviously, right? Look at his smile. Look at the way he dresses, uh, the command that he has over his staff. Look at the size of this building for crying out loud. I mean, God wouldn't have blessed him if he wasn't doing it right. And in the middle of all that, you know, the power just kind of grows and grows and gets larger and larger until the momentum is so great that that guy or that church gets an inordinate amount of power and authority, which is generally not a healthy spot for humans to be in. And then other humans start to come, you know, and if they, if they try and disagree with him or with the, with the board or with the momentum of the church, it's almost impossible to do that, to try to uh, bring up some other thoughts and some other ideas about how things should be done. It reminds me of that Upton Sinclair quote, it's impossible to get people to change their mind, especially when so much rides on them not changing their mind. And there are so, there's so much money and economics and resources invested into these huge churches that it's almost impossible to change it without some major problem that happens. And of course, major problems definitely happen in these mega churches. It's all kinds of scandals and cover-ups and abuse and manipulation and spiritual, what I label as spiritual abuse that takes place in these contexts. It's super, it's super troubling. Now, that's not to say that similar kinds of things can't happen in small churches, for sure. Small churches have their own issues. But I, I tend to think that small churches don't have that added pressure of size and what brand awareness and prosperity and ego, ego, <laughs> eagles. Yeah, small churches don't have eagles or egos. But overall, I tend to think all things equal, small churches may give humans a better chance at leading a healthy, authentic life. Uh, G.K. Chesterton has this quote. He said something like, the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. And the reason is clear. In a large community, we can choose our companions. But in a small community, our companions are chosen for us. I think that's kind of interesting, and I think that's kind of true. And also in small church, you definitely don't have, I don't think you have the power problems that you have in the megachurch. And again, I don't want to rip on a megachurch. I don't even know when a megachurch starts to become mega. When is it? Like I have, a, I have more than one friend who dislikes everything about megachurch because it's nothing but American exceptionalism and consumerism. And I agree with a lot of it, but my pushback is when does a church become mega? 
Is it the move from 700 to 703 people? You know, from 1,000 to 1,001? Are you telling me the church of 699 couldn't have some of the same dysfunctional problems of 701? Or the church of 19,000 couldn't have the same problems as a church of 20,000? I, I just don't know where that line is. And so I don't want to categorically write all of them off. I'm just saying, generally speaking, I'm not really sure it's the healthiest way for humans to grow in their faith. And it's the power thing that's particularly troubling to me. And I guess I've been thinking about this lately because, well, so like we started advertising this, um, this sexuality conference that I'm putting together. Uh, my friend Tom Ord and I, we've been talking about doing this for a couple of years. And because of COVID and some other stuff, we haven't been able to pull it off. But finally, we decided to just pull the trigger on this thing. I invited some of my very favorite speakers on this topic, well, in some ways, some of my very favorite speakers on any topic. But for example, and hey, you guys should know about this because you're probably going to want to take advantage of this and be a part of the virtual conference happening October 7 and 8. It's called An Interesting Conference About Sexuality. That's right, An Interesting Conference About Sexuality. Uh, if you go to aninterestingconference.com, you can learn all about it. Or you can search for all that information on Eventbrite and get your, um, your Zoom ticket. But yeah, we invited four people. Uh, Monica Coleman, Elaine Padilla, Linda K. Klein, and James Allison. Now, Monica and Elaine, Monica's African-American. Elaine is Hispanic, Latino, American. Uh, they're both process theologians and internationally known scholars and authors. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast, you know about Linda K. Klein because uh, we had her on a few episodes ago. She's really, really articulate. And her book, Pure, is you know a New York Times bestseller. Actually, I don't know if it's New York Times, but I know it's been on several bestseller lists. I'd have to double check that. And then James Allison, again, has been on this podcast, and you've heard me talk about him. He's a gay Catholic theologian, Girardian theologian, who's been a big influence um, in my uh, theological journey. So these are really interesting, intelligent, scholarly, articulate people that Tom and I have gotten together. And we're going to um, interview them and interact with them. Actually, they're going to present. And then Tom and I are going to uh, unpack what they present and do a little live Q&R with people like you, whoever's going to be tuning in on those particular nights. So, you know, we published the website last weekend. I got all the Eventbrite ticket stuff together, you know, sent it off to all the different channels, all the different people that I could send it off to. And I was just, I've just been reminded over the last few days how frustrating all this is because of the topic and, and probably in particular because of who I've invited and who Tom and I are. Well, I shouldn't speak for him, but, but for who I am. You know, there are people who can't advertise it, who are interested in it, but they can't share it in their network. You know, I've already gotten response from pastors who said, I love this, I want to be a part of it, but I can't talk about it because the denomination may, you know, I may get in trouble with the, with the powers that be, right? Uh, I've already had a professor tell me that they can't share it in their network because they know at their institution that the school is checking their so everyone's social media accounts. You know, it's just stuff like that. It's crazy. It, I'm just reminded how this stuff still goes on. Uh, I had a phone call just yesterday from someone uh, here in the community that I live in 
or in the greater Kansas City area who is struggling with their church because she recognizes that she has questions, but she can't, she has to be really careful about who she is um, talking with and how she's being honest and how she would like to be honest, but she knows it's going to get her in trouble. Anyhow, th- these, these stories just never seem to stop. I'll go a week or two and not hear anything. And then I might hear five or six stories in a row of all these different ways where it seems so clear to me that the powers that be are still coercing and manipulating and forcing people to be less than forthright with their questions and their comments and their struggles. And it's super frustrating. It really is. And I I guess that's why I've been thinking about that make a church thing too, uh, because it just bleeds over into the same problem. This problem that we have of always worshiping certain people and certain systems that seem to be big, as if big is a strategy, as if Jesus ever cared about something being big. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's frustrating. We've lost the ability to patiently and graciously hold dialogue and value all kinds of different people. You know, it's worth noting that it seems like the Christian church in some ways was the first institution in the history of the world that was capable and interested to bring like Jews and Gentiles together, men and women, slaves and free people, and and afford all of them equal footing. But it seems like we're incapable, especially in America, of doing that anymore. Anyhow, yeah, yeah, come to the come to the sexuality conference uh, in spite of the fact that it may get you in trouble with the people <laughs> who you report to. And oh, by the way, uh, I've got a new essay in a book that's coming out. You can order it, uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. It's called Partnering with God. And there's several different authors who've, um, who've got some chapters in there. And I have a book in there called or excuse me, a chapter in there called In Partnership with God, Even in Our Sexuality, or something like that. See, I can't even remember the name of the essay. But among other things, I say in the essay that what if fluidity was woven into God's design from the beginning? What if, and this connects with what I was trying to say earlier, like it seems like Christianity was the first movement that was able to pull different kinds of people together and afford all of them equal footing. There's a bit of fluidity even there, you see. And so if you follow the trajectory of that, you start to ask questions. What if fluidity was woven into God's design in the first place? And I actually think it was when you read Genesis chapter one, especially verses one and two. And so... If you think that way, then you realize that that God that God actually could be with us in our variations of height and skin pigmentation and eye color and hand dominance. So so God's with us in a variety of different physical expressions, and that God is also with us in in our waves of depression or confidence, our hope or our pain, our guilt and our our assurance, and so God is with us in our emotional expressions but also that God is with us across our range and spectrum of intellect, intelligence, reasoning, and imagination. Yes, God is with us 
across the different mental ways that we express ourselves. So all of us generally agree that God loves us and is with us across the spectrums of differences present within human emotions, mental abilities, and physical shapes. So why wouldn't God be with us across a spectrum of sexual orientations as well? Most of us already agree he's with us in all these other areas, but for some reason we've drawn a hard and fast line around the sexuality piece. Young people are dying for this kind of dialogue. And not just dialogue about sexuality, but just valuing integrity and bringing different people with different thoughts together. If we are a gracious group, we should be able to offer grace to others and to hear where they're coming from in order to, to try to find truth. But we don't seem to be very gracious. You know, on more than one occasion with my former denomination, I tried to leverage one point, and that was that both they and myself agree. I mean, yeah, I was trying to find something common ground that we both agreed on. And I said, I know that you know that in the years to come, the questions about LGBTQ stuff and sexuality and identity, they're not going away. You know that, I know that. Why don't you use me and our church as a place to, for lack of a better word, experiment a little bit? I mean, I tried to leverage that common ground, but of course it didn't matter. I mean, they agreed with me that this problem's not going away, but beyond that, they didn't want to have anything more to do with me. And so the conversation was over, but it just, I find it unbelievable. I don't know what in the world do they think? How can you have a future if you can look down the road and you can look me in the eye and say, yep, that's going to be a problem in the future, and then ignore it and then pretend like that's a healthy thing for the system and pretend like that's sustainable. Pretend like you can continue to get young people to show up within your group. You're not going to. You're going to lose a lot of good young people. And I know of a lot of good young people that have left the Church of the Nazarene, which is the denomination that I used to be a part of. It doesn't make any sense to me. We get so wrapped up in the way things were in the past, we can't step into the future. It strikes me that all really authentic spiritual growth has to do with letting go. Letting go of control. Letting go of the way we thought it was going to be. Letting go of our own opinions about this thing and just taking our fingers off of it and allowing it to become whatever the winds of change that are blowing into it are going to let it become. Often the greatest obstacle to the very next thing is the last thing. The greatest obstacle to the next thing is the last thing because our attention is fixated on the last thing. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the spirit of love, that the energy of the universe is constantly moving. And if our eyes are backwards, you know, or stuck on the rearview mirror, whatever metaphor you want to use, we won't be able to navigate into the future. And so we got to be able to let go of stuff. But we just often don't because we're so enamored with the big and the metrics that have gone up and to the right, and especially here in the West, with big buildings and big pastors and big egos and success and consumerism and exceptionalism. And I think we're missing, we're missing people. 
uh, we're missing in particular the people who are marginalized. And those are the people, it seems to me, that Jesus spent the most time with. So yeah, if you're listening to this, of course, be careful with who you talk to. But I hope you don't waste too many years within a system that isn't interested in questions, that isn't interested in dialoguing, that's too insecure to even let you talk about stuff. Because really good people are being hurt. So use discernment, use wisdom, but continue to read and listen and ask questions and carve out space in your heart to really entertain stuff that's different. Because that's the way we'll begin to relate to other human beings who are different than us. And if it's not about that, I don't really know what it's about. On this season of the, of the podcast, we've been talking a lot about story. And I guess as I ramble about some of this stuff that I'm talking about today, it reminds me that I'm in the middle of a story. I, at each page turn, I have to figure out whether or not I am going to get caught up in the mimetic contagion of imitating those groups and those systems, whether they're denominations or megachurches or colleges or universities or seminaries or family groups or political groups. At each step, I got to figure out whether or not I'm going to imitate that or I'm going to keep following after the way of this brown-skinned, homeless Hebrew man who was executed in a state-sponsored act of violence in the back streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And if I do the latter, it's going to require me to do the work of trying to reimagine, you know, how a human being can live and be in our world and how groups of us can live and be reimagining different faith communities that really, truly, and at the essence of who they are, believe that all human beings are worthy of being loved, I guess. And today I'm reminded how much the powers really don't care about that. And that's not really a very positive way to end this uh, little time together with you, but I guess that's what I'm going to do. I encourage you to check out the conference and interestingconference.com. I, I encourage you to check out the book. It's called Partnering with God. You can pre-order it on Amazon today. I don't know when it'll be out. It'll be out in a few weeks. And, um, and keep growing and listening and keep pursuing love. All right, and as we close, I think you're in for, well, I started to say you're in for a treat. You may not be, but I'm going to go back about 10, 12 years. Gosh, what is this, 2021? Yeah, we're talking about 12 years ago. I wrote this song, recorded it. I spent a little season of my life trying to put some energy and effort into, you know, being a being a vocalist. And uh, I wrote this tune. I've always kind of dug it. And as I was talking today about, you know, acceptance and uh, being able to embrace people for who they are, well, you know what? This song started rolling around in my head. So here you go. You can also find it on iTunes if you want. I do got a couple of these songs out there. Hope you enjoy it. If not, you can always fast forward it. I'll catch you next time. Peace, everybody. You read a poem like a telephone book And you often go and take a look Into the places that you cannot see 
shelves and wood To sit and watch the sun burn In the hopes that it will move at a different speed Yeah, it's gonna be what it's gonna be gonna be what it's gonna be And when will you really for who I am When will you let go from the plan You made for you and me How you think it's all supposed to be Cause if you could only let it go Then you'd be free to watch it grow Into the story that we know that it Cause 